Nature Works Podcast. Conversations with extraordinary guests who are working to protect, regenerate, and better understand the natural world. With your host, Mike Weeks. Welcome to NatureWorks Podcast, in which this week I'm speaking with Dr. Ian Hendy, a marine conservation ecologist and senior lecturer at Portsmouth University School of Biological Science, who also happens to be, as you can tell if you're watching the video of this, you can tell from his biceps, he happens to be a part-time natural bodybuilding champion who gets up at 3.30am to train. That made me somewhat tired just thinking about it. In this episode, we have one of the most brilliant descriptions and breakdowns of complex science by a man who I actually said after our call should be a TV presenter. See if you agree with me. There's hints of David Bellamy there, but wrapped up in the body of an Adonis. God, I sound like a fanboy now. Anyway, we discuss mangroves as ecosystem engineers and carbon sinks and marine ecosystems like kelp forests in the UK. We also go into why we should let nature do most of the work of restoring itself and, in that, Ian's optimism for our planet's recovery. If you enjoyed this episode, and why wouldn't you with people like Ian Hendy and others, please share with other folks who care about the natural world. NatureWorks podcast always aims to provide honest and unbiased insights into how we can help protect, restore and regenerate the natural world. Thanks for taking time, and I know you've got an incredibly busy schedule. And looking at your research paper list, I'm not surprised, but I'm not also not convinced that it's not that you're running off to the gym or to the local surf break. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's purely research. My 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 gym side of things uh, uh, takes place at three thirty in the morning, so I get all of that done, and then it's research principally from from eight a.m. onwards. Yeah. What time do you go to bed? Uh, a, a, about eight o'clock at night. I'm, I'm come about seven o'clock at night, and I'm yeah. doing that head nodding thing, you know. But yeah, it's all good fun. So you do actually get some sleep because there are some people out there who can who can go in the gym, bust their asses off, and hold down careers, and they do it on three or four hours sleep. But I'm not convinced that you don't pay for that in later life, like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, for instance. Yeah, um, no, you need your sleep absolutely for recovery. I, I'm I'm 50 years old now, and and so I probably get about six hours, seven hours sleep most nights. I guess, yeah. And so, you, um, you look bloody good for 50 years old. I mean, it might be the blur of the Zoom camera, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a, a poor resolution camera. But thank you very much. Yeah. It, it it is. We'll ask for a high res image for the uh, for the show notes, all right? <laughs> and, and then we'll decide decide from there. Hey, look, I I know. Yeah, so we've only got an hour, and um, I've got so much I want to dive into with you. But the very first question that I want to ask before we go into a bit of your background is a really personal one. I'm obsessed by oysters, right? I like to eat, I could eat oysters every single meal and it would be my last meal on earth if I was on death row or, you know, uh, or a meteorite was about to, or an asteroid was about to hit the planet. Now, one of your papers is ephemeral detection of Banamia excitiosa or haplosporida in adult and larval European flat oysters. What I want to know is 
no, now knowing that something like that even exists, is it safe to eat oysters? Should I give them up here in Indonesia? Am I going to get sick? No, you're not. No. It, um, well, don't forget, oysters are filter feeders. Okay, so it, depending on where they're farmed and where they're cultivated uh, and what water they're filtering, you'll be ingesting. But the actual banania, uh, once digested, won't harm you. Okay, so that's not a problem. What's a banamia? Um, Sorry to interrupt, but what's a banamia? And I will interrupt you when you're when you're using nerdy so, terms. So the banamia is, is a parasite that infects oysters, and and so here in in the UK we're having uh, uh, um, huge problems with restoring and regenerating native oysters, na- nat- native oysters back to our local waters, and we have invasive species taking over. We have substrate limitation, we have water quality issues, and we also have this waterborne disease where this parasite can then infiltrate uh, uh, the oysters and it kills the oysters. And so it's all of these things, it's all this big, I guess, uh, uh, um, perfect storm of disasters and, and, and illnesses and environmental impacts that are reducing the oysters. Um, but essentially, safe to eat oysters particularly if they're cultivated in a nice area where you've got really good water quality so it's absolutely fine yeah don't worry yeah so i'm going to use that into a segue of really the state of the oceans because um uh, oysters i would imagine are a relatively good indicator of an ecosystem's health aren't they 100 percent, absolutely so they, they are a very good indicator species so if you have eutrophication which is nutrients coming out from coastal areas, from farmland, you know, where the farmer will put nitrates, phosphates, nitrogen on his crops to increase the biomass of his growth of his crops. Rainwater runoff will then end up in the oceans. All of those nutrients will create what we call eutrophication. So this increases microbial activity, utilizes up all the available oxygen, and also things like poorly treated wastewater. But all of those massive impacts will be a big, big uh, uh, degradation for oysters. And of course, overfishing and those sorts of things. But if you don't see oysters around, generally speaking, it's down to generally poor water quality. And that could be from what we've said before just with eutrophication, but also sediment dumping, which is a big thing at the minute. So we're having dredges coming in, um, dredging out channels, dredging out coastal areas for coastal development. This is for increases of marinas, increases of widening channels for bigger boats to come into ports. And of course, what they're doing is dumping those sediments off out at sea, and you're resuspending deposited heavy metals and toxins that have been sequestered over many, many years. So you're resuspending all of that toxic soup. And of course, the filter feeding organisms are ingesting all of that. So that's where the problem lies. I had somebody in the gold mining industry who I just happened to be at a... I was in Uluwatu on a weekend break and I got chatting to this guy and he he advises gold mines on how to do it environmentally sound and i said that's bullshit i don't buy it 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 can be done that way and and he said that one of the things they're doing right now 
is looking at a huge gold mine here in Indonesia where they then have to create a pipeline miles offshore and they can just dump all of the mining materials, not the gold, obviously, out into the oceans. And he just said, it's so deep down there, it just doesn't affect anything. And I mean, maybe that's the case, you know, at certain depths like Marianas Trench or something. But from what you're saying, some of that will be getting picked back up in the filter feeders. and 100%. So um, I would argue... Uh, that you're correct and he's wrong. So I would say, and to, to quote you, bullshit. Well, I, I would call the bullshit card on that guy. Um, what you have, particularly in the deep oceans, not only do we have what we call uh, uh, um, black smokers, so these deep smoking hydrothermal vents full of life, okay? So very, very, uh, they should be highly protected, very special, they're pumping out lots of carbon, okay? But, but you have a lot of life, these, these create mini reefs, but also you have deep sedimentation, deep carbon stocks in those deep ocean trenches, but principally you have cold water upwelling from the deep ocean trenches that goes up to the coastal areas. So if they're pumping out all of those toxins to deep ocean areas, that, that will be recirculating up to coastal areas. So um, I, I only hope that this gold mine, where they're doing this and pumping those sediments out, that they've done their due diligence in terms of the science and had people look at this and to determine those ocean circulations to see what's actually happening in that area. Because of course, Indonesia, you've got the coral triangle. And, and that's the center of marine biodiversity. So for corals, for fisheries, for mangroves, uh, seagrass beds. So it's very biodiverse. So if you, it, it could create an ecological catastrophe if it's not done right. Absolutely. You've spent a lot of time spent... in Indonesia, from what I understand. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah sur I, I... Surfing and as a scientist or mostly surfing? Um, <laughs> Mostly as a scientist, uh, my, my, my surfing, I'm, I'm very much a beginner with surfing, um, but mostly as a scientist. So I spent 10 years over in Indonesia. I still have projects over there. Um, so my background is I'm a mangrove ecologist. So I look at the structure and the function of mangrove ecosystems. So the structure being its physical biomass, um, how it can sequester carbon, so greenhouse gases from the atmosphere pulls it down like a big carbon sponge, locks it into the woody tissues of the trees. Then sesame crabs, fiddler crabs will break down all of that carbon. It gets taken below ground where you get these huge carbon stores below ground. And so I look at that structure and I look at the function, which is the biodiversity associated with those mangroves. So it could be juvenile fish stocks, it could be the invertebrates. So I look at all of those impacts of how um, forest harvesting, for example, climate change may impact coastal biodiversity for mangrove forests. From what I understand, Indonesia is actually quite a special place for mangroves, isn't it? And Because I, I know the president himself, Joko Wee, has said many times that one of our greatest assets is the mangoes here across 17,000 islands. Absolutely, absolutely, Mike. We, we, so about one-fifth of, let's look at the, the aerial extent, so about one-fifth of the global mangroves are found in Indonesia. So hugely incredible and significant. Now, 
mangroves will have a huge list of what we call ecosystem services. Massive value, by the way, huge economic value. But we're losing mangroves anywhere at a rate between 2 to 4% per year. We're losing these due to deforestation um, principally. So harvesting those mangroves for shrimp farms, those sorts of things, they'd be cut down. Or for uh, tourism trade. So sometimes mangroves will be cut down and then you'll see a resort that will be plonked down right in the middle where the mangrove used to be. Now, mangroves, vitally important. So as I've already said, that they have food provisioning, so they create what we call the nursery function. So this is the structure of the mangroves with those root systems that you see above the sediments. That habitat complexity will drive a very strong juvenile and vulnerable nursery habitat for baby fish spawning grounds. Very super important. So as later on in life, as those fish develop and they grow, they then go out to the coral reefs where they develop as adults. So super important with that connectivity between the mangroves and the reefs. Also mangroves will act as natural filters. So they stabilize the sediments. So they, they keep the water clear for corals and sea grasses, and they act as natural storm defenses as well. So for things like tsunamis, if we go back to ooh, was it 2004 with the, the tsunami in Thailand, and over many years, over many decades of years, those mangroves were being cut down. And so uh, if, we, if those mangroves were conserved, I'm certain many, many lives would have been saved because those mangroves would have buffered those storm waves. In actual fact, mangroves, they can, they can dampen wave energy up to about 70%. So super significant in terms of natural storm defenses. Um, they keep up with rising sea levels currently. Okay, so they're very good for natural storm defenses and rising sea level defenses for low-lying islands like Indonesia. They provide food for uh, the public and, and there's a staggering number of, I think, I think the number is about 3 billion people, 3 billion people are dependent upon coastal fisheries, okay, for the protein. Now, I think out of that 3 billion people directly, there's somewhere in the region of about 250 million people directly dependent upon macros. So super vital. Now, as I said, they will provide food provisioning, they will act as storm defences, but crucially, they're very good at mitigating climate change, okay? So as I said, they draw down greenhouse gases, store it within their woody tissues, but then that carbon over many years will get stored below ground in the mud. Now that mud is a rich commodity for Indonesia because Per hectare, so the size of about a football pitch, you can store, on give or take, about a thousand tons of carbon per hectare. Staggering amount. So if we were thinking of Premier League wow. football, wow. so you'll have peat bogs, number one. Then just below peat bogs, you'll have the mangroves. Okay, so these are the these are the prime players in terms of carbon stocks and blue carbon sequestration habitats. Okay, so mangroves are super vital for mitigating climate change. And the other thing, um, because they store lots of carbon, they, they store also lots of dissolved inorganic carbon, which is full of carbonates. Okay, so the more carbonates you have and the more organic material you have, 
is uptaking CO2, so carbon dioxide, from the water. This reduces, basically in layman's terms, what I'm trying to say is what it does, it reduces localised coastal acidification. So if you've got coral reefs adjacent to healthy mangrove, generally speaking, you have a healthy coral reef. But of course, we're losing mangroves of about 3% per year. So it's vital that we restore mangrove forests and keep those mangrove forests. They're worth far more having the mangroves than not having them. Absolutely. One of my colleagues was, actually three of my colleagues were in London a couple of weeks ago at the big climate conference where billions of dollars have been <clears throat> yeah, three of my colleagues were at the London Climate Conference and they were talking to some boffins from, uh, I think it was from Norway, who have been analysing the world's most uh, likely areas for very high degrees of carbon credits. And they estimated that, that just by protecting, safeguarding and not touching uh, any of the coastal mangroves, coral reefs in Indonesia, the, the country could uh, generate about $3.5 billion annually in carbon credits because it's such, as you said, a, such a deep, rich sump um, and, and sequestration um, uh, environment or ecosystem. My question is, is why aren't, why aren't we planting more of it? Is it something that can't be planted? Is it something like old age, uh, you know, old growth forests? Why aren't we out there planting this stuff by the bazillions of hectares? Mike, I'm giving you a virtual high five here because we've been asking the same question ah, okay. as mangrove ecologists. <laughs> right. Now, um, we have the red scheme, the reductions of emissions through deforestation and degradation for terrestrial forests. Now, that's been age old. Okay, It's been going on for donkey's years. Now, blue carbon, so carbon sequestering the marine environment, really... In, 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 if we're thinking in scientific terms, is really a new science at the minute. Even though we've been talking about it for quite a while, in the general public mind's eye, it's a new science. And so companies, uh, scientists, we've been trying to get uh, uh, blue carbon sequestration, blue carbon accreditation nailed. Okay, now the difficulty, the difficulty compared to terrestrial carbon, so forested carbon, is the, I guess, is, is, is the um, origin of the carbon, okay? So the difference being on land, you know that the carbon is derived from those trees pretty much, okay? Now, if you've got a mangrove forest, I think back 10 minutes ago when we talked about runoff from the land, okay, um, you're going to get in that runoff from the land, you're going to get organic material and carbon particles from material going from fields and forests being washed down into mangroves. So the difficulty is determining the proportion of mangrove-derived carbon to terrestrial carbon, okay? because those credits matter, because obviously companies want to pay for the carbon credits of mangroves. Okay, But science is developing all the time. Now, we can do that now okay, through things like stable isotope analysis, eDNA, lead 210 carbon dating. So all of these things, we can determine the proportion of, of carbon derived from the mangroves as opposed to the carbon derived from other sources, okay? Now, 
there are massive programs now moving forward and it's happening rapidly so you'll be glad to know so rather than instill ecological grief there's lots of positive so we're just starting a project looking at uh, in actual fact a 4,000 hectare mangrove restoration project in Honduras and Mexico okay now this is going to be for um, carbon accreditation so looking at carbon credits where 60 percent of those credits in those 4,000 hectares. So remember, one hectare has give or take about 1,000 tonnes of carbon per hectare after about 30 to 35 years of sequestration and storing that carbon, okay? So now times that up, you've got a considerable value there, okay? So 60% of those credits go directly to the local communities the incentives to actually maintain those mangroves okay and so then the other proportion goes towards the restoration of that and, and everyone's a winner um we're getting we're getting mangrove restoration projects now in niger delta we're, we're we're trying to secure a project there now this one is forty thousand hectares hugely wow. significant and, and actually this this links us back all the way to the beginning along with that we're doing, uh, uh, we're hoping to do a, a sustainable regenerative oyster program for that area as well. Okay, so a lot of the mangroves in the Niger Delta have been impacted by the oil industry, for example, um, and unsustainable harvesting of the oysters. So you've got mangrove oysters that sit on the roofs and people hack them off and then they obviously either eat them themselves or sell them. So what we're trying to do now is restore those mangroves, bring back the ecology, uh, uh, stop those environmental impacts, but to develop a sustainable oyster fishery for the area as well. But that's for, that's for Africa. And then we've got another program in Indonesia that's fresh and new as well, looking at mangrove restoration over there as well. So there's lots of things developing and new science developing all the time. Um, there have been, so I'm digressing a little bit, but, but there have been a lot of restoration programs. As I said, it's a new, fairly new science. Um, there's been some programs where people have just planted mangroves in the wrong areas. Okay, mangrove trees, if we think of um, a, a shoreline profile, all right, so where you see the water on the beach to where you directly visit the beach, you're higher up, aren't you? Then you walk down to the shoreline, okay? So where it's lower, where the shoreline is, that's the low intertidal. Then you have the mid intertidal, then the high intertidal. Now, mangroves will have a zonation along that shoreline gradient, okay? So you'll have a greater biomass of trees slightly further away from the water because they're less stressed. They have lower tidal inundation from the water. So there's a greater carbon biomass. And the further you go out, you'll see the trees will be generally slightly smaller because they have greater immersion time. Okay, so uh, all of those aspects um, are very sensitive to mangrove trees. Now, people, local communities have been planting particular mangrove trees in the wrong tidal height, which means you have an unsuccessful restoration project. So um, there's a lot more science and ecological uh, engineering that goes into mangrove restoration than you would do for a terrestrial forest. I've got a lot of questions about that. Um, it seems to me that there's 
absolutely no reason why everyone shouldn't be uh, protecting and and doing mango restoration, especially as it, would I be right in saying that mangroves are the highest sequestration um, technology that we have on the planet right now? Because I've been looking at so we 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 do regenerative agriculture in our company, and one of the reasons we're, we're doing that is a because there's a there's a commercial benefit to us which is a for-profit company but that came only after we realized that when we do a full uh, when we do regenerative agriculture with biodiversity and we're restoring the soil first the crops kind of come second that we get all of this sequestration capability and benefit but it's not a fraction of what you're talking about with mangroves it sounds it seems to me that we should all be in in the business of restoring mangroves for a, a whole host of re- reasons. So, um, one, if you could answer that question about, you know, my assumption that that is the number one way to sequester CO2. And then two, how do you actually go about doing regeneration? I get the protection bit, like stop hacking this stuff, stop polluting in the area, stop going in and chopping it all down for shrimp farm and the like. But how do you do the restoration piece? Right, okay. So the first part of your question, now, uh, um, we've got to be careful with, with what we talk about here, as in the sequestration part, which is the trees pulling down the CO2 from the atmosphere, yeah. then storing it, okay? Yeah. Now, now, mangroves are the king of carbon stores, absolutely, but they're not the king of, uh, of drawing down carbon. Okay. They do, obviously they do it, but they don't do it. For example, kelp. Kelp will draw down carbon probably 20 to 30 times faster than a mangrove tree. Bang, bang, bang. So it's really effective carbon. That really proper is a carbon sponge. It will suck it down really, really well. But with kelp forest, what you'll have is a kelp carbon conveyor. Okay. Now, the difference between a kelp forest and a mangrove, of course, is a mangrove will, 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 will be born out of a muddy, soft sediment substrata, all right? Kelp settle on rocks. So, of course, it can't create a carbon sink. So what it does, it pulls down carbon very effectively, but most of that biomass, most of that carbon will end up either through the food chain of adjacent fisheries but also to deep ocean trenches. Okay, so it's a very different, it's a very different carbon cycle altogether. All right, but but mangroves should be the pr- principle. Okay, let's think about the globe. All right, we've got thirty percent of our planet is land, seventy percent is water. Thirty years from now, we're going to have another billion billion point three people on the planet all right so looking to the land for restoration and mitigation of climate change bringing back ecosystem services is going to be very difficult because we're already at almost two planets worth of resources so let's look to the oceans now we're losing mangrove forest hand over fist okay now we know there's a whole suite of nature-based solutions ecosystem services and you can mitigate climate change, you can put protein on the table, you can create natural storm defences and bring back the economy and feed pretty much the world with all those services. Particularly if you have mangroves, seagrasses, corries, salt marshes and all the other habitats 
that create those same benefits. So that's super important. Um, now, your other question, your other question, Mike, was... How do you um, actually go about restoring it? How do you go actually about restoring it? Now, of every site... It's not a one-size-fits-all issue. So every site is site-specific, okay? So it could be, for example, if you've cut down the mangrove. Now, remember, those mangrove trees will stabilize sediments. Now, if you remember, I said to you that mangroves are very sensitive to tidal height, high into tidal, mid and low into tidal. They get different zonation of trees, okay? You take those trees out, what's going to happen is, is soil erosion. So you're changing now that tidal height because those sediments get washed away. So now you've got a different tidal height. So you've got a problem. So the mangroves won't grow back now, even if you wanted to restore it. So you have to do a little bit of bioengineering. So you need to do what we call a backy study before or after control and impact. So you go to another mangrove that's close or fairly close by, look at the environmental variables. So you look at the salinity, you look at the tidal regime, you look at the tidal elevation. You then replicate that, okay, with putting sediment down, looking at the microbiota of that sediment. So you make sure that that's the same, the same nutrients in the mud and the sediments. You dig some channels and you plant the same mangrove seeds or propagules that you find in those mangroves close by at the same tidal heights, and you'll get a really good success rate of the regeneration there. So it requires a lot of thinking. Um, similarly, if you're going to a mangrove and it's been cut down for shrimp farms, now those shrimp farms will have probably maybe three, four year lifespan before it becomes eutrophicated and, and enhanced with nutrients and the soils are pretty much lifeless. So what you need to do is do some cultivating to bring those soils back to a, a, an environment where the mangroves will survive and like. So those sorts of things that you have to think about, think like, okay. Um, and invariably, if you just make the environment right and bring back the tidal elevations and dig in the channels, invariably, Mother Nature mm. brings back the mangroves anyway. They'll just return, you know. So, And, and what you'll find is, with mangrove regeneration, you're seeing improvement in also, as I said, the connectivity, so the whole ecosystem. So we're looking at seagrasses as well and coral reefs. So if you think of that value-added benefit, it's just the whole ecosystem will just explode back to life again once you bring back that connectivity. Uh, John Muir, famous naturalist many years ago, said that you target a single thing in nature, your fires attached to the rest of the world. It's so true, isn't it? You know, it's so eloquent. Matt. I um, have watched maybe three or four times and shown to my kids also, and actually give, shown it in in presentations where I've been teaching complexity in organisations. Uh, the video is about trophic cascades. I think it's George Monbiot who narrates two of them. One is about the the great whales and how their poop feed back, uh, feed plankton, and the plankton then cause this cascade of environmental benefits. And the other, of course, is the wolves in Yellowstone. When they brought back the wolves, that cut down deer population, which allowed all of the vegetation on the rivers to grow back. Beavers came back, nesting birds. And it sounds like, to, to some degree, that uh, the mangroves are the, are the uh, non-swimming, non-running version of the whales and the uh, wolves, in that they can call these kind of trophic cascades. Um, I've seen it here as well. We, we took on... 
three and a half months ago some rice paddy fields that we're now doing bioorganic regenerative agriculture on. And um, from day one, we I said, just let everything go fallow, wild. Let's see what happens. Now, we've, we've segmented about, I'd say about 15% of the land where we're spraying it with um, biological bacterial inputs and we're restoring the soil and we're composting and we're doing all that. But the rest of it, we've I just said, let's just see what happens in, in six months. Now, the land's been, for over 30 years, continually flooded twice a year because that's the cheap way of keeping weeds down. That's why rice farmers actually flood the rice paddy fields. The rice can actually grow in dry climate, uh, in dry, dryish soil, but they do it just to kill off all of the other competing plants. They also spray it with nitrates and and um, uh, urea and pesticides and herbicides and all that lovely Monsanto stuff that we know is beneficial only to Monsanto's back, you know, bottom line. And um, so the soil is pretty much devoid of nutrients and it's dead and it's just not very healthy but what's been fascinating to see is that the very hardiest of plants within a couple of weeks have started growing on that on that otherwise clay-like drowned soil it's not soil it's it's you know mud and then those have brought back in some butterflies and dragonflies and insects and within three and a half months i i filmed a couple of nights ago standing there Let's say there's 20 hectares of land behind us and I'm just standing on a tiny portion of an acre and I'm surrounded by swifts. Now, there's no swifts. I've got binoculars, very good ones. There's no swifts anywhere across the rice paddy fields. You just don't see them out there because they're not eating anything, right? Because there's no insects. And I'm standing, it looks like in the video, it almost looks like it's fake because it's like hundreds swifts flying above my head because the insects have come back and they're eating the insects. Absolutely. It's like three a CGI months. bit of land. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Three months. That's all it all it took. And it just keeps these little moments. And we've we've dug a big pond and we're we've put in uh, uh, different types of um, uh, grasses around the edges of it. And frogs are back in. Somehow fish have got in there, even though there's, you know, there's not seemingly no way they could get in there so i'm assuming that eggs have gone in uh we've got eels in there and a couple of months in nature it's like nature wants to come back to its full glory we mess it up it's the most, yeah yeah absolutely as you say leave it alone and, and just once you get the environmental variables right just leave it alone and it will just whoop, succession comes in and bang it just comes back that's a great story i love that and that um, what, what a thing to witness and, yeah, and it actually every day lovely to it would have been lovely to report that every two weeks scientifically and just go, look, guys, if we just leave things alone, look what happens in just a third of a year, a quarter of a year. Bang. You know, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I've been, reco- I've been recording it uh, every week. Uh, I'm not a scientist, so I haven't been t- collecting the data, but we can see the, 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 the process. Um, we're, we're talking about complexity and um, it says in your bio that was put in front of me that you, um, you re- your research is based around understanding how human interactions, environmental variation and climate change are responsible for altering biodiversity, biomass and productivity. And I assume by that you mean productivity of, of the natural ecosystems, what they're yes. producing, right? Yes. How, as a scientist, do you actually study 
from a complexity perspective, all of those different variables and ever come to any real conclusions. Because like we just said, you know, you take out one, you, you take one element out of the equation and it can affect everything. You add one element back in and it can affect everything because everything's connected. But how do you go about studying that? Because science is very much, you have, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you, you have to some degree be a reductionist, even if you are not, right? If, even if you like if 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 you are motivated to study systems and and holism but you have to study reductionism to ever write a paper because every paper is a reductionist product right because <laughs> you can't study everything and all of its interactions so how do you go about sort of balancing the need to be a scientist whilst also encountering all of these different elements in what you do so um so we, so I do a lot of what we call multivariate analyses. Okay, so pretty much what you're talking about now. Again, I think I mentioned this earlier about what we call a before, after, and control impact study. And so we've all heard the term. Well, I hope most of us have heard the term what we call the shifting baseline syndrome. Okay, so which means for those that haven't heard of this, which means. My mum and dad would have said, Ian, this stream, this pond, this bit of ocean here, we used to go fishing, it would be full of fish. But their mum and dad would have said, that's nothing. You should have seen it when we were kids. Then their mum and dad and so on. So you can peel it back and peel it back and peel it back to a time when everything was thriving. Now, here's the thing. We don't know really what ecology and biodiversity should be we don't really know we have an idea but we just don't know because we're pillaging the ecosystem services what we've been talking about you know the nursery function natural storm defenses carbon sequestration we're pillaging those ecos we've lost 50 percent or just over 50 percent of ecosystem services in the last 70 years so think of that if we carry on going we're going to keep losing those so what I tend to do is look at various different levels of degradation from what we would deem a healthy site. Okay, so I measure the productivity. So I measure the growth rates, whether it be a seagrass bed, whether it's a mangrove. Okay, so you can measure and quantify the growth rates of what we would think or deem to be a healthy ecosystem in this day and age. Okay. I then look at the carbon content, measure those carbon stocks, measure the drawdown rates, but also I, I, I quantify the habitat complexity as you've just been talking about. There's lots of ways that you can actually quantify that. Then I do systematically, I record the biodiversity. Okay. Now the associated biodiversity associated with those mangroves. Now remember, there's connectivity. So I look at the whole ecosystem. So then I then do the same for the adjacent seagrasses, then the adjacent coral reefs. Okay, so we measure that whole connectivity. And so really we have an indicator of health. So you can look at the number of juveniles associated with those habitats, the number of for example, or the percent surface area of hard coral cover on the coral reefs, or you could look at the percent of filamentous algae overgrowing the seagrass beds to prevent it from, from photosynthesizing, clarity of the water, the water quality itself, all of those me measure metrics that you can measure. Now, 
you can assign trophic levels to the associated communities to those three habitats. Okay, so primary producers, primary consumers, meso predators, filter feeders, scavengers, apex predators, all of those things, all different trophic levels. Okay, and generally speaking, the healthier the ecosystem, the greater the trophic complexity. Okay, so if you were to plot that, and so on your on your x-axis, you would have habitat complexity going from low to high, and on the y-axis, you could have number of species, abundance of species, number of trophic levels, and what you would have is a positive relationship in most cases. Okay, now there are things called or analyses, for example, called community evenness. All right. Now, let me try and explain this without showing any graphs. So community <laughs> evenness. If you have a high evenness of animals within a community, it means you have a good flow of energy. All right. Connectivity of carbon nutrients going through that ecosystem. So it's a healthy habitat. You've got high biomass of the plants. OK, that's the structure and the function of the flow of energy going within the ecosystem and between ecosystems. And generally speaking, you have a high number of trophic levels going from the plants to the apex predators. We talked about the whales and the phytoplankton. You've got a high number of animals in between that, transitioning that energy to the higher trophic levels. Now, with a high habitat complexity, you have a high number of animals. Now, if, for example, one species, for whatever reason, became knocked out of that habitat, okay, you would have what we call functional redundancy. Another species with the same trophic guild would jump straight in on that in that niche, in that environmental niche. It would fulfill that niche instantly. So you've got a healthy habitat. So you, it's resilient. Okay. So in other words, it's a bit like having a really good immune system. Do you know what I mean? So uh, um, we've got an impact from climate change coming in. And if you've got a healthy habitat, a healthy ecosystem, one species might not like a particular temperature regime. It might go out of what we call its zone of tolerance, and you might see an extinction of that one species. But if you've got a healthy habitat, another species jumps into that niche and fulfills that, that role. Now, if you've got an impacted habitat with a reduction of habitat complexity and reduction of biomass, you have less niches all right, to fulfill. So generally speaking, you have what we call a lower evenness. So that means you have a high abundance of one species, which is generally a generalist species that can withstand high temperatures, low temperatures, high pH, low pH, those sorts of things. And you have very few of other species. So in other words, the trophic levels within that food web is now reduced to maybe one, two or three trophic levels. So if you have... Uh, an extinction of one of those species, pretty much the ecosystem implodes on itself and you have what we call a trophic collapse. So, and that's what we're seeing. We're, as you know, we're slap bang in the middle of the sixth mass extinction because of these loss of these key habitats. Mangroves, sea grasses, kelp forests, corries, they're ecosystem engineers. They draw down carbon. They mitigate climate change. They provide habitat for many organisms and they have a huge value. And so that's how I measure 
and kind of quantify those losses by by comparing to near as damn it what we would consider a healthy site and say right okay what are the impacts so it's a bit like doing an environmental impact assessment or exactly like that so you go to an habitat and you say right okay um there's poorly treated wastewater going on here the mangroves have been cut down hang on a minute let's just not look at the mangroves let's have a look at the coral reefs here's a point in question actually most people will focus on the coral reefs for tourism trade people want to go there see the beautiful corals and you'll see coral restoration going on coral frags putting the coral frags out in the reefs they die each year people are like what's going on why are they dying and you're seeing uh, what we call phase shift so uh, uh, algal dominated phases so algae overgrowing those coral reefs now i argue is hang on a minute it's a bit like having a trapped nerve in your back you could be rubbing your shoulder here thinking oh, i've hurt my shoulder but the actual problem could be in your lower back so you're trapped a nerve so you're not actually going to, you're not actually going to the actual pinch point of that issue if you were to actually restore the mangroves then you're purifying the water you're giving it extra nutrients, okay? You make the water less turbid, so it's more clear. Um, you have more juvenile herbivorous fish growing up in the mangroves as juveniles, which then later on in life uh, will spend their adult life cropping the coral reefs of, of, the, of the algae. So you have a reduction of the algae. Okay, so all of those things, that connectivity, then suddenly bang, as you say, mother nature takes care of it, and you start seeing juvenile corals and, and, and start sprouting up everywhere and panulabia of corals growing and you'll see less algae overgrowing on the sea grasses then suddenly you get a healthy ecosystem again so um we can use uh, uh, the model of what we would deem a healthy ecosystem then apply those multivariate techniques to an impoverished ecosystem but as i said it's not a one-size-fits-all the issues could be different but as long as you know what you're looking for, you can find it. Does that answer the question? Sort yeah, of yeah it, it answers it like I sat down to, to um, do a PhD with you, actually. It's in, yeah, <laughs> it answers it many, many times over, but it also raises a number of, of, of more questions. I know we've only got 10 more minutes and I haven't even got started here. Yeah. So we can do another call as well, by the way. I'm happy to do another podcast. Why don't you come to Bali and then you can come in the podcast room and we can I have would love to. we can have yeah. a beer and we can sit back and we can do a three hour podcast and then we can go surfing just down the road. Yeah. Let's exactly. do it. Yeah. High you're well, five. You're Let's exactly. That. You're welcome yeah. anytime. <laughs> yeah. So um but you 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 talked about the fact that if a if one species fails to thrive in an environment, my words, and another will take its place. Now, with climate change and with all of the problems that that human um, industry and agriculture and just humans have created in the natural environment. Are there species other than, I don't mean wood uh, pigeons in cities and peregrine falcons feeding on those pigeons, but in areas like mangroves or coral reefs or any of the ocean, are there any species that are actually thriving because of climate change? Is, is, there, is there any good news or you know in all of this like as as one ecosystem starts to fail because of temperature rises is there anything that's actually benefiting from it for instance or is it all that... so um again a very good question we do see regime shifts in community structure okay now 
again, I don't want to instill ecological grief. We know, for example, if corals, well, the, the science used to tell us that if corals go beyond one to two degrees above their nominal temperature, they bleach, which means their algae inside of the corals that produce carbohydrate, which feed the corals, will exude out or will, will degrade and become toxic. So the corals, what we call bleach, they lose their color. Then they eventually die because they're not getting the food that they require. Okay. But what we're finding actually now is there are some corals and we find these corals in rock pools in some mangroves. Now, if you think about it, when the tide goes out, those corals in those, in those mangrove pools, the water can get up to 35 to 40 degrees C. That's 10 degrees above what we originally thought corals could survive. And some of those corals completely healthy. Now we see what we call different, let's call them species, different species of algae that can live within corals. We now understand that it's not just one kind of species, there's four different kinds and each has a different tolerance to different temperatures. So we know, and we know there's programs now where they're looking at trying to bioengineer or look at predicted sea level temperature or sea temperature rise. And so what they're thinking about is, okay, we know in 20 years from now, the, the seas, the coral seas might be one degree warmer. So if we can try and cultivate some corals that will have this different, this particular species of algae inside of corals, it will survive. So they're looking at things like that. Okay. So um, again, it's not all bad news. And if we think back to kelp forests, for example, there is a warm water. So we're seeing kelp love cold water. Okay. If we're thinking of kelp. And, and oceans are warming up and we're seeing changes in the kelp community structure, particularly in the UK. In the UK, if we count at the same amount of time of loss, the rate of loss of kelp, by the end of the century, we'll have zero kelp forest left, okay? So we're trying to do big, we've got a big restoration project in the UK, which is 300 square kilometers on the South Coast. Big and this UK's largest kelp restoration project we're doing. And, um, We've got a couple of PhDs looking at the biodiversity, looking at the kelp carbon. But also I'm starting another project where I'm looking at the spread of this warm water species going from the west, so around from the Cornwall coastline, spreading over to Sussex and Brighton. Now, what we're finding is that this warm water species, uh, its Latin name is Laminaria ocralucra. Now, the warm water species brings with it a completely different community structure of animals. Okay, even though it's a kelp, it's a it's a it's a kelp species, and you would think even a slightly different height from the native species that we have, um, but it brings with it a completely different suite of organisms. This is because we now know um, a really lovely paper that's just come out by Dan Smiley that we now know that there's this filamentous algae, a different filamentous algae that overgrows on this warm water species that now brings in a completely different suite of organisms and commercial fisheries. So um, even though we're seeing differences, we will see regime changes, but you also do have generalist species that can withstand high temperatures, low temperatures, high pH, low pH, but it's the specialist species
okay, that will have a very narrow niche of environmental variables. In other words, it cannot withstand too high temperatures. It cannot withstand too low temperatures. Let's call it the Goldilocks syndrome. You know, it likes a very narrow range of environmental variables. And it's those species that will suffer. OK, and so we are seeing changes in that. And so um, it, we, we're confident that we can maintain those habitats. And now there's a big push going forward to restore mangroves, seagrasses, corals, kelp, oysteries, all of those things. But there will be changes in the community structure associated with it. So you read my mind there because my, my actual last question was going to be, we've talked about mangroves in places like here in Indonesia and in in Africa and Niger, but what's the equivalent in northern waters, European, especially the UK? Um, you know, I'm still nostalgic for for my Cornish and uh, and Devon summer times that I've had many of. You know, but what what is there is there an equivalent or hundred percent, absolutely. So mangroves, as I said, are ecosystem engineers. They they, they Intensive, all intensive purposes, they're a forest, but they grow in the intertidal regions of tropical seas, okay? Now, the temperate or cold water equivalents will be salt marsh habitats, seagrass ecosystems, and kelp forests, okay? Now, they don't have the biomass of a mangrove forest in terms of the carbon, but they still sequester CO2 from the atmosphere, they still lock down, particularly salt marsh and seagrasses will lock down and create a carbon sink. And they also create a nursery function. Okay, so they're, they're very vital, important spawning grounds for our coastal fisheries in and around the UK. Kelp forests, again, will, will draw down carbon, as we said, 20 to 30 times faster than a mangrove. The habitat complexity of the salt marsh, seagrass and the kelp will provide a nursery function because it reduces predator-prey interaction. So you get a greater survivability of the juveniles and vulnerable species. And of course, they all store carbon as well. And kelp, for example, because the fronds of the kelp will sit on the surface of the ocean, they kind of hold down those stormways and they can actually reduce, reduce the impact of stormways by up to 50%. Salt marsh, seagrass and kelp reduce coastal erosion. So you've got that benefit as well. So these really are the mangroves of the cold water environments. Absolutely. Last question for you, because we are getting to the, uh, we've got three minutes left. So yeah, earlier, just now you mentioned the sixth mass extinction. And yesterday I was actually on National Geographic reading an article about that. And they were saying there's over a million species right now that are potentially facing the endangered no the extinction list um are you optimistic or pessimistic as a scientist who's in the trenches and literally creating solutions what how do you view the future with what's currently happening with what we're doing right I'm, now i'm optimistic we we science is progressing all the time okay now you know we everybody says ah oh, this is 2022. We know everything that we need to know. Not at all. Not at all. We're still learning. We're still in it. We're still in our infancy with science and ecological research and applied research. But we're learning all the time. We know that destructive activities of our coastal oceans, you know, resuspending carbon, uh, 
coastal development. We know now that that's detrimental. We know habitat development, loss of key habitats is detrimental to biodiversity. We know this now. We know these things have an incredible environmental value. So hugely positive. Everybody now is now surging forward to go, right, okay, hang on a minute. Well, let's just stop what we're doing. But it was stepping in the right direction. And as you say, as you say, Mike, that, that just in three months alone, you're getting birds coming in, these apex predators, you're getting these meso predators, you've got the you've got the primary producers with the plants coming in. Nature will find a way if we just give it that chance. And we're doing that. We're doing that. There's going to be significant restoration programs occurring on the land and in the oceans. And I think we're going to see a big turnaround in the next 10 years. There's um, United Nations based legislation. So we've got sustainable development goals. OK, uh, uh, so this is from the United Nations. These are initiatives to bring back things on the land or restoration on the land and in the oceans. Sustainable Development Goal 14, specifically for the ocean. So uh, there's the Convention of Biological Diversity have stated that by the year 2030, 30%, 30% of our oceans need to be fully protected. Now, we're, a little, we're about, I think we're about 6 or 7% of the oceans at the minute protected. So a little bit of a way off, but we got almost a decade to get there but there's now sincerely huge pushes towards getting those areas now restored as i already mentioned just with the mangroves alone with the ones that i'm just working on with 4,000 hectares in honduras in mexico 40,000 in the niger delta projects in indonesia so if you think extrapolate that up with other scientists and restoration conservation scientists the future's positive. So absolutely, 100%. I named this podcast and our farm Nature Works because it's it does. We, we just have to get ourselves out of the way of it as much as possible, right? <laughs> give absolutely. It, completely agree. Give it a helping hand. Um, Ian, we've gone one minute over. I promised uh, Grace, who organised this call, that I wouldn't take you beyond the uh, your 10am. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. I sort of feel like... I just bumped into somebody who could change my life and then they got on their bus and went in the opposite direction at the bus stop. So you have to promise me you'll come back on as uh, as soon as convenient. Right. I, I promise. I promise. So please liaise with Grace and, and I'll liaise with Grace. I, this has been a complete pleasure for me. <laughs> And, and it's been a joy chatting with you and talking about this. I would love to come back and have another call with you. Absolutely. Ama amazing. Yeah. And you're at the Blue Earth Summit and I'm speaking at the Blue Earth Summit as well. So we can Fantastic. Yes. We can have a, have a beer and um, and uh, discuss surfing because I'm a beginner as well. I'm terrible at it, actually. But <laughs> I'll introduce you to my cousin. He's a, he's a big wave. He's a world champion, big wave surfer, Tom Butler. I introduce you to him. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, I'll look forward to that. Um, I'll let you get on. You've got a gym session ahead. Of, no, you've already had it, haven't you? This morning at oh, three. I have my gym session. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's all it's all research today. So yeah, more meetings. Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk bodybuilding next time. Love Thanks, it. Ian. Take care, mate. Right, my pleasure. Much you, appreciated. All right. Cheers. My bye. pleasure. Bye. 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 -bye.